If you just try to deal with the symptoms, you're never going to get better. Um, if you kind of re... You, you give birth to yourself in a new way. You bring your body back to where it's meant to be and you really care for your body that then you set yourself up for success and you, you, you stack the cards in your favor. That's award-winning chef, restaurateur, wellness advocate, and adventure cyclist, Seamus Mullen. This week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you doing? What's going on? It's Rich here. It's the podcast. I'm the host. Thanks for tuning into the show where I do my best, I really do, to engage the most compelling, intriguing, paradigm-breaking minds and personalities across all categories of positive culture change. The idea, well, the idea is to help all of us unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves so we can simply live and be better. So thanks for subscribing to the show. If you want to support the show, please take a quick moment to give us a review on iTunes. That helps us out so much. And you can also support the show by clicking on the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It won't cost you anything extra on your purchases. And it's a really great free way to support the mission. And you can make it easy by just bookmarking the link from the banner ad on my site to your browser. That way you don't have to keep going back to my site. And everybody wins. All right, so what's going on? Well, I'm in Utah today for the second time in a week, actually. Why am I in Utah? Well, the Iron Cowboy. That's why. As you might know, I came out uh, a couple days ago to support the Iron Cowboy on the final day of his extraordinary 50-50-50, where he completed 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days. I had the Great privilege of running the final marathon with him that day and getting to witness uh, him uh, achieving something that I think will go down in the annals of endurance history as one of the most epic accomplishments of all time. Uh, and I wanted to do the podcast with him the morning after he completed the event, uh, but unfortunately, he lost his voice because he stayed super late and talked to everybody. There were like 3,500 people there, I just found out. I thought it was like 1,500 or something, but it turns out there were like well over 3,000 people there. And the guy literally was there until almost one in the morning talking to everybody who wanted to talk to him. Woke up the next morning, lost his voice. We couldn't do the podcast. I wanted to get it while it was hot. So I flew out uh, Friday morning <laughs> to get it done and we just wrapped it. It lives up to all the hype. It's an extraordinary conversation with James. I get the full story of the whole thing. And his wife, Sonny, was on the podcast, as well as his wingmen, Casey and Aaron, and a special appearance by his daughter, Lucy. It's a really incredible uh, conversation. I actually got emotional at the end, which is a first on the podcast. I was tearing up at the end. Uh, I plan on putting that out in the next uh, two weeks. I'm not sure exactly when, but of course, I'll let you know and uh, keep you posted on all of that. But today, today it's all about my friend Seamus Mullen, who is quite inspirational in his own right. More on Seamus in a minute, but first. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science-based habit building program designed 
by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties, and 
deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. So this week's guest on the show is my friend Seamus Mullen, who is a New York City-based award-winning chef. You might have caught him on the Food Network's The Next Iron Chef or on the Today Show or Chopped or CBS This Morning or Martha Stewart. He is the proprietor of four restaurants, which include Tertulia, which was a finalist for the James Beard Foundation Award for Best New Restaurant, as well as El Colmado, both in New York City, and Sea Containers at the Mondrian Hotel in London. He's a cookbook author, and he's become a leading authority in the conversation on food, health, and wellness, and this is where things get interesting. Because Seamus was an avid cyclist who raced competitively in his 20s, but in 2007, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease that truly debilitated him. It really brought him to his knees and forced him to rethink his relationship with food. And through a holistic approach to food, exercise, and lifestyle change, Seamus was quite miraculously able to successfully turn his health around. So much so that he's gone on to do amazing things, including conquering the incredible La Ruta de los Conquistadores, one of the most challenging mountain bike races in the world. And he spends most of his free time these days on crazy cycling adventures with pro cyclists like cyclocross king Tim Johnson and Cannondale Tour de France rider Ted King. It's an amazing story. It's one he shared with the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and on his bi-monthly column in Men's Journal. And it's what we're going to focus on today. So let's just get into it, shall we? Let's do this thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Seamus Mullen. I like how you just uh, came up. You're all sweaty. <laughs> it's like road. You yeah. ride a, do you ride like a mountain bike in the city? No, what kind of bike do you ride in the city? I have a single speed. I've got like a Bianchi single speed that I ride in the city. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm thinking that I'm going to, I have a, an old mountain bike that I'm going to convert to a single speed as, uh-huh. a, as my town bike. Right. Well, you don't want your city bike to be too nice. Right? No, in fact, mine, mine is like so, so geared up that you can't steal anything off of the bike. Uh-huh. I mean, well, you can steal like the brake levers and things like that, but the, you know, the seat post is locked down, the, uh-huh. the, the seat is locked down, the wheels are locked down. <laughs> so I can just kind of lock it up and, and forget about it. I don't want One lock or do you do the double lock? I just do one lock because I have the, the pinheads on, on my, um, front and rear wheel. So you theoretically can't really steal the wheels either. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a bit of a pain in the butt, but you know, getting around on the bike is the, yeah. I, I don't take the subway and I don't take taxis. I go everywhere. I put in like 80 miles a week on the, on the single speed, just commuting around just town. Commuting, yeah. Do yeah. you live in Brooklyn or where? I live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's a minimum of like a 16 mile commute for me a day. Right. Right, um, right, right. But then running around doing other stuff. When I came here, I almost just tried to find like a used beater bike yeah. to just buy so I could just ride around. And then I was like, 
I'm so busy every day. It just seems silly. Like then I was going to have to sell it at the end. Yeah. So I've been riding around on those stupid city bikes, but at least it's better than it's like, better than know. being stuck in, in yeah. traffic. Oh my God. It's yeah. so much nicer. You know? No, I can't. I, I've been riding bikes for all my life. And the idea of, of having me stuck in traffic in the city is just, I mean, it took me what, like eight minutes to get here from, from the West village and we're in Midtown. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, that you can't beat that. That's crazy, man. And you're coming off a three day, 300 mile ride yeah. from New York to DC. Yeah. For, yeah. From New York to DC. We left on Sunday morning. Uh, we rode down to Philadelphia, actually just outside of Philadelphia to Bucks County. Uh-huh. And then, uh, went and spent the night in Philadelphia and then we drove out. So we took a, we didn't do a direct route. We did sort of a nicer route. Mm-hmm. We drove out to Amish country near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, rode through down to all the way into downtown Baltimore and then spent the night in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we rolled out the last day to, uh, to DC. Cool. And that's, you, you work with a bunch of charities. What yeah. charity was that one? one it's for? with an organization called share our strength. And they focus on ending childhood hunger in the U.S., uh, primarily through providing breakfast in, in public schools for kids that don't have food at home. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was really cool. We actually got to go to one of the schools that's a, a, one of our pilot schools in Baltimore and uh, meet all the kids that we came in. There's a bunch of media there and just seeing actually the last, you know, the last 12 inches of the journey where the food's actually getting to the children right. was very, very cool. So we raised about $300,000, which is Roughly three million meals that we're providing for kids. So, oh, wow. it's, so, so it makes so, a dent. So what is the difference? Like, what are they doing with the meals there that makes it special? Well, I mean, the main thing is, is that a lot of these kids don't even have food at home. Mm-hmm. So if they don't get breakfast at school, they're not they're they're going to be hungry through through lunch. Um, and then tr- trying to provide them a breakfast that is not just all processed food. So they're getting they're getting fruit and vegetables. And and it's you know I, there's a there's a long way to go, and we can definitely improve the quality of, of the food. But the first part is just getting the is the is is the context and getting getting the kids food and getting them food that's real food, so that they're not you know they're not starting the school day without any nutrition whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, well, school lunch is such a disaster. <clears throat> oh, it's, you know it's I mean? a huge, it's, huge problem. And it's it's amazing how difficult it is to enact change in that field because everyone yeah. agrees, but there's so much money being made and there's a lot of politics with it. Um, later, or next week, I'm going to do a podcast with this guy, Stephen Ritz. Do you know him? He no, works up I don't. In the, he works up in the Bronx uh-huh. in schools and they're like growing all their own food in the oh, library cool. and doing all this amazing stuff. Oh, that's stuff. great. Yeah, he did a really cool TED Talk, so... Awesome. I wonder if he's affiliated with Karen Washington, who's in the Bronx. She's a she's an urban gardener, mm. and she's done a great job getting getting fresh produce into into areas neighborhoods that don't have fresh produce. Yeah, cool. She's she's super cool. Yeah, well, I'll ask him now. Yeah, I bet he knows her. I mean, they're in the Bronx, so he probably knows her. Right, right, right. Very cool. Um, So nice, man. So you guys raised a a bunch of money. Yeah, raised a bunch of money. It was it was a lot of fun. It was all chefs riding, and this weekend they're doing another ride on the West Coast from Santa Monica to uh, San Diego. Diego. Yeah, nice. And there was a so it was chefs, and then you were with a guy who's like doctors, doctors without borders, right? Uh, no, that was, was on. That, that's, that was a different ride. That oh, that was, was the Baja. That was, yeah, my motorcycle <laughs> okay. adventure. Yeah, I can't keep track of all your yeah, adventures. I know. I'm like, yeah. for somebody who's got a whole bunch of restaurants yeah. and seems like a super busy entrepreneur, it's amazing that you find time to go on these amazing adventures and make cool videos. Well, like, I sneak. Up online, I sneak out like Men's Journal yeah. and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I sneak out. <laughs> that that one was cool. That was that was a that was a, a little bit more fun and less less charity involved in that. But with my one of my best friends who works with MSF and uh-huh. he uh, he's based in he's in Africa, um, but he happened to be home on on a on a break and. 
Menzero wanted to make a video of an adventure, so they said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, let's go to Baja, man, right. riding motorcycles. How does that work? Do they, like, finance that? or They just they got, yeah, they got they... sponsorship to do it, and uh, BMW hooked us up with bikes, and, and we spent eight days motorcycling around Baja, uh-huh. which was which pretty <laughs> tremendous. A sweet gig. Yeah. And they send a guy to just, you know, film it. And we had a like crew. That. We had, like, four four guys filming. Wow. Yeah, we had some drones. It was pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I watched it this morning. It was cool. pretty neat. Yeah, it was And fun. then you did, uh, you did something for men's fitness when you rode la ruta right yeah well with men's journal yeah um i i've done stuff with them in the past i didn't for la ruta i didn't specifically do do anything with them i'm actually working on a documentary that we're we're producing about that journey so that was kind of this culmination of my coming back from being very unhealthy for Mm -hmm. many years and then getting back onto the bike and and really rediscovering my love for the bicycle and so i kind of had to give myself something that was more challenging than what than what i'd been going through when i was six so we Figured, why not do La Ruta de los Conquistadores? It's a pretty, pretty epic, yeah, epic cool. race. And I want to get into that, but this is probably a good kind of like launch pad to kind of get into, you know, the pivotal part of your whole story, which is this amazing journey from, you know, being somebody who really had like a whole battery of health issues that yeah. were seemingly impossible for you to overcome and then overcoming them. And then now living this, you know, very entrepreneurial adventure, some athletic lifestyle that you lead. Yeah, it's been an incredible journey, and I, I really could not have done it without a lot of help from from my family and from my friends and from from uh, uh, Dr. Frank Lippman, who's mm-hmm. become a very close friend. Um, I, I went from being like this very healthy guy who was really athletic and and competitive to slowly like all the nuts and bolts of the wagon started to get loose until eventually the wheels started falling off the wagon, and by the time I was in my late twenties, I was really sick. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. I looked, you know, I looked around everywhere I could to try to find answers, and and my doctors didn't really have any answers for me. And uh, eventually, my my health got to the point where I was basically incapacitated. I mean, working was really really hard. Getting out of bed was really hard. Um, and I was eventually diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, for for most people that that. Most people have heard of arthritis, and they think of osteoarthritis. They think of the wear and tear in your joints, um, as I had as well. But I I didn't realize, and a lot of people don't realize, that it's an autoimmune disease, that um, the actual aspect of arthritis is really a presentation of the disease rather than the cause or Mm. or the, the real issue. So I went through the very traditional treatment of of, uh, of treating the symptoms through heavy duty drugs, a lot of I mean, things like prednisone and methotrexate, which is a chemotherapy drug, and uh, immunosuppressants, and and it kind of you know I was able to function, but it wasn't it was no life. Right, but let's let's like take it back and, and break it down a little in a little bit more detail. I mean, you <clears throat> you grew up in Vermont, right? Mm-hmm. You grew up kind of essentially, and for people that are listening, like I had the pleasure of hearing your story, mm-hmm. and we met at Revitalize at this conference recently, and I was very moved by it. Um, it's it's an incredible thing what you've overcome, but you. Know, you kind of grew up with a mom and who loved to cook and kind yeah. of taught you about this connection between food and health and you, you you had a very kind of like physically tactile experience with food as a young person right totally. so you had that kind of seed planted early I did but then I kind of lost touch with it so I had this moment where you know I grew up in a very uh, you could say sort of back to nature environment in the 70s in, in Vermont where where my folks were raising all of their own stuff and my mom was really, really concerned with the quality of the food that my brother and I were eating. Um, but we were also in a really, really rural environment where there weren't a whole lot of educational opportunities for us. And so my folks decided that it would be, make the most sense for us to go away to school, to go to boarding school. Um, 
And we did. And what that really meant is that we were able to really kind of cultivate our, our intellect, if you will, but our, 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 our internal culture, our bodies really suffered from it. Back to school lunch. Exactly. Yeah. Back to school lunch. I mean, it's about as, you know, that's school lunch is, is as bad as it gets. And that's the foundation of, of your health. And it really, you know, I, I, it's funny. I look at my brother and he's, he's very healthy and hasn't had any sort of health problems like I have had. But as I, I, I look back on my own history, I realized that all it takes is one little infection or one, you know, one, one thing to kind of throw the gut off. And if you're not eating well, then it just can, it can set off a chain cascades. of events. Yeah. It cascades into the, to a series of other medical issues. And the problem with all of the, the, a lot of the, the, the Western approach to, to treating that is that you, you end up creating all these other uh, you know, subsidiary, um, whether they're symptoms or diseases or other things that are a product of the actual treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I had this really great upbringing, you know, lots of great food. Went went away to school, started to get sick. My health slowly you, declined. But you were, were you were bike racing when you were younger, though. Yeah, right? I, was, I started bike racing when I was a teenager, and uh, and and even you know I I I was at that point I was lactose intolerant. Um, I had food allergies, you know, all mm. sorts of things. But I was still able to, as you can when you're 17, 18 years old, you can get away just, with yeah, it. you can get away with it. But just you knew, but you kind of knew that already. Yeah, but I didn't know that um, what I was dealing with was was really part of a much bigger issue. I mean, I didn't feel like I didn't feel terrifically sick, but I just felt like how I felt, and I didn't have. I was young, so I didn't really have a um, I didn't have a, a control to look at and say, oh, I should really feel like this. I should feel mm-hmm. a lot better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only kind of now that I'm that I feel really good that I look back and realize how horrible I felt for so many years, <laughs> right, which right. is really a remarkable remarkable thing. So cyclocross racing, mm-hmm. uh, mountain bike racing. Yeah, mountain biking cross. In high school or in college too? Uh, or? The end of, co- end of high school, college, and then after college is when I really got serious about it. Right, right, right. So like 21, 22, till I was about 26. Mm-hmm. And, and when does, so you go to Michigan to college, right? Yep. And then do you come to New York right after that? Or you, start, no, you, I go, went, to, you went to Spain? I went right? to Spain, yeah. Yeah, I traveled a bunch. So I, I, my senior year in high school, I did in Spain. Went to Michigan for a year, then went back to Spain for a couple of years. Um, then came back and I moved to Philadelphia for a few years and then, uh, moved to California. And this is what I was really cooking seriously. Moved to California. When did the idea of becoming a chef like crop up? Kind of when I was in, when I was in college in, in Spain, uh, I was working in a restaurant there. I was around food again and starting to rekindle that love for food. And I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed cooking. Um, and I didn't think of it as something I could do professionally as a career, but my grandmother said, listen, this is what you like doing. You should do it. Like you always like doing that as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I always like doing it. And and the notion, you know, in in school, they don't really teach you, this is what you love doing. Then you should try to build a career out of it. (laughs) It's kind of like they try to fit you into these little boxes. Yeah. And I had this amazing moment with my grandmother where she, where she was like, like, listen, this is what you're passionate about. You should, you can, you can make a living out of this. You can like, you know, wow. Yeah. You know what? I don't have to be a consultant. Exactly. Or... <laughs> exactly. I think you probably went through a very similar <laughs> yeah. epiphany, maybe a little bit yeah. later in life. Much later. Like, yeah. Much later. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's cool. So you, so you're in Spain and you're starting to kind of apprentice cook, and learning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And doing all that. And then I came back and, um, so I was working in Philadelphia and cooking and I was also riding bikes and pretty seriously racing bikes, which is a kind of burning the candle at both ends. Cause you're working late at night. You've got these long hours. Right. And then I'd get up in the morning and I'd train and on the weekends I'd try to, sometimes I'd, I'd, you know, race on a Saturday and then I'd have to drive back to the city as quick as I could to get, get to, to work kitchen. on time and then mm-hmm. work all night long. But you know, 
it's what I did, and it gave me it gave me the days free at least to train. Yeah, that's crazy because you hear these stories of you know the chef life, and it's just you're just you just live in that kitchen all the time. Oh yeah, the fact all that the time. You even could you even attempted to try to be an athlete on any level and maintain that lifestyle yeah. is kind of it was amazing. really hard. I mean, yeah. that, there must have been a lot of adrenal fatigue. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was like, wasted yeah. all the time, and I think that eventually that's why I stopped raising because I got to the point where. You're, I mean, I was also racing with guys who I was racing in a pretty competitive field with guys that were literally sitting all day long. Mm-hmm. They were, if they weren't training, they weren't even, you know, you know, the right. classic cyclists that are like, how many, mom, how many minutes can I spend sitting down, lying down, right. not using my leg muscles right. at all? With Normatec boots on. Exactly. Normatec boots, legs up. Yeah. <laughs> watching television, icing themselves. And I, you know, I would like finish a training ride and go straight to work. Right. Um, so it was pretty hard. It got to the point where it just, I, I. I don't want to say I got burned out on racing, but I just, I couldn't compete at the same level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I was really used to being competitive and being strong. And then suddenly I was not in the same league. What kind of, what level were you at when you were doing that? I mean, were uh, you ra- racing against the Tim Johnsons and you know, those kind of Tim guys? Tim is a or? little bit younger than I am. Um, and I don't think Tim and I ever raced together, but, um, some of the guys just above him, uh, I actually raced against Floyd at one point. Oh, you did. Wow. Yeah, way back when he was when he was mountain biking, um, when he was wearing cutoff shorts. Right. And, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I raced. I mean, um, uh, Jeremiah uh, Bishop, who who's now like one of the the top endurance mountain bikers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was coming up just as I was kind of coming out. But I was in the I was in the expert semi pro field. Um, eventually semi-pro and then I just, that's when I stopped. I realized I couldn't. So the, the, the old categorization in in Norbo, which was predates when Norbo and the UCI joined Mm -hmm. or USA cycling joined, um, there was beginner sport expert, semi-pro and pro. So Mm I kind of worked my way up over the years. Wow. Yeah pretty tough to make a living in that oh i don't yeah i don't know how on earth you can yeah like i don't know how those guys do it no it's crazy and they're on the road so much they were you know but you see the guys that are i mean they they do get to ride their bike for a living so that part is is cool that is pretty cool all right so so you make this decision to devote yourself full-time to the kitchen and when does when does the health stuff start to really impact you it starts early on in very um sort of in, in like fits and starts and I don't even realize that it's happening, but I'll, I'll develop like a pain in my shoulder or a pain in my elbow and there'll be, and when I say pain, I don't mean like, Oh, my elbow kind of hurts today. It would be like a really severe acute pain that feels like something is dramatically wrong with the joint. And it would happen to me primarily in my, in my shoulder, my right shoulder would happen a lot. It would last for like three days. I wouldn't be able to move my arm mm-hmm. and then it would go away. And, uh, it, it was just as mysterious when it disappeared as when it came. Like I had, I couldn't figure out what might be bringing it on. If there's any, any sort of, um, set of, uh, of, um, circumstances that might make it happen. It just would sort of happen. And that started getting to the point where that was becoming kind of chronic. Um, actually let me rewind a little bit before that. I started feeling just general malaise, just sort of exhausted all the time, hard time getting out of bed in the morning, mm-hmm. not feeling myself, certainly was not exercising at this point at all, not really taking care of myself, leading more of like the typical fast chef's life where you're drinking a lot mm-hmm. and partying a lot mm-hmm. and you're up late and all of that. And you're and, just kind of grazing on food all day grazing long, on right? Yeah, no meals. I mean, literally, I went years without eating a meal. I would, right, I would just kind of always eating, but never, never really, really full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're, I mean, the classic 
chef move is you see the guy at nine o'clock at night with a, a quart container full of like macaroni and cheese from family meal. <laughs> and he's like throwing like three bites in his mouth as quickly as he can. He puts it back and he goes back to cooking like a maniac mm-hmm. because you just, you don't ever have any time. And the, and the time that you should be eating or which, I mean, that's arguable. I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with it. We have to eat at three, you know, three designated times of the day, but at least I do feel like it makes sense to stop what you're doing and eat a meal and mm-hmm. be aware of how much you're eating. And that's that. But when you should be doing that or when you could be doing that, you're actually feeding other people. So it's really, really hard to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was I I was I was feeling pretty crummy. And then I developed like a weird um, lump on the back of my neck and it grew and got bigger and bigger. Eventually got to the size Mm -hmm. of a golf ball. And on the uh, outside of your neck, yeah, or right, on, the, right on the it was well, it was under the skin. It was subcutaneous, right, like behind your ear, almost. yeah, right behind my ear, exactly. And um, which I now know it was a lymph node, and my immune system was totally out of whack, and that was that was inflamed, or it had there was it wasn't draining properly, mm-hmm. or whatever was going on. But um, I went to my doctor. He looked at it, was concerned, did blood tests, saw that my white blood cell count was very elevated, and that my liver enzymes were extremely elevated, and. Uh, and then a few other markers for inflammation, and he was very concerned there might be it might actually be um, lymphoma. So I was mm-hmm. then sent to an oncologist. How old were you then? I was twenty seven, I think twenty eight. Uh-huh. Were you already here in New York? Yeah, or? I was in New York, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so they looked at that and, and they decided to take it out and biopsy it. So they just kind of drilled into my neck and cut this massive thing out, and then wow. came back as benign. They're like, "Well, we don't know what it is. Okay, see you later." And that was that. Wow. And then I just started to like have more and more symptoms, and and um, yeah, the, clearly something is seriously wrong. Something's if wrong. If your yeah. white blood cell count is like super high, yeah. that it's like causing your lymph node to engorge itself. Oh yeah, like, it's not <laughs> yeah. it's not good. Something, but but then again, there was there was also like you know I, I turned to my doctor when when he when he said it was benign, which obviously I was glad that it wasn't cancerous. But then I said, okay, well, what the hell's going on? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, the classic, classic answer was, well, we don't really know. So we'll just, just wait it out and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So that went on. And then, then the, um, the attacks on my shoulder became much more frequent and they started happening in my hip. Um, and every time I'd have one of these attacks, it was so bad. I'd end up going to the ER, uh, and they'd sort of dismiss me for not having gone through any major trauma. So they figured it was just either I was, I was told I was a hypochondriac or that there was some old sports-related injury that would need to be fixed by an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would just go away, but then they'd come back, and they went on and on, and eventually it got so severe that, that I was, I was uh, admitted to the hospital, and that's when I was diagnosed with RA. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that? That was um, 2007, uh-huh. <clears throat> so eight years ago. Right, and how, how old are you now? 41. 41, okay, yeah. so... All right, so you're in the. You get this diagnosis, and mm-hmm. what's the you know what's the prescription? What's the so protocol? the prescription is, and that's exactly you know that was my exact questions. Where the doctor came and said, "Listen, you have you've got RA. Don't worry, there are lots of great drugs. You're going to be totally fine. We have all this great new technology for treating it, which you know." relative to the way they had been treating RA in the 70s and 80s, which is with things like gold injections and all sorts of stuff that just didn't really do anything. And if you look at gold folks... Gold injections? That was, a, that was a big... Yeah, that was Literally a Literally injecting you with gold. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. Wow. They didn't even know why it worked. I mean, a lot of these things would... Would some, they, they'd quell a lot of the symptoms. And if you look at folks that had RA in the, in the, in the 80s and early 90s, a lot of them ended up with very disfigured joints, like mm-hmm. their fingers would be all gnarled or their wrists would be gnarled and end up having to have lots of surgeries to reconstruct their joints. Um, and what a lot of the newer drugs did do, and they do quite effectively, is they, they slow down the, the degenerative um, 
uh, symptoms or the, the acute attacks that cause degeneration of the joints. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the main problem is that they don't, I mean, they do, they cause a host of other problems um, and they don't address the root cause of, of any of the issues. Right. It's symptomatic. Right? Symptomatic. It's symptomatic. And what treatment. are the, what are the, what are the, uh, the effects, the negative effects of taking these drugs? Um, I, they're, effects? they're horrific. I mean, when you, when you talk about prednisone, prednisone is one of the most overprescribed drugs on the market and it's, it's a steroid. It's right? a, a very powerful steroid and it, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very good for stopping acute inflammation that to me is not really a great thing to do because you need to understand what is driving what's, acute what's inflammation. Pre, yeah, yeah. What's causing your immune system to create to do the that. inflammation in, yeah. in the first place. So prednisone is one of the major ones that they use. Um, then there, there are all these drugs they call biologic drugs, which are mostly injectables. Um, and those are drugs that uh, will target specific um, inflammatory cytokines, specific inflammatory proteins, um, and reduce the production of them to stop inflammation in the joint. Essentially what happens with the way rheumatoid arthritis is usually explained by a rheumatologist is that it's a glitch in the immune system whereby the immune system perceives some sort of problem within a joint and will attack that joint, that joint mm-hmm. with white blood cells to, to, uh, to cure this in, in this infection that, that, that's perceived to be there. The problem is, is that then that becomes uh, hugely inflamed and then causes deterioration of the joint. Mm. Um, in addition to also just creating a whole host of other problems from respiratory problems to to um, just general, to, to, to fever, malaise, achiness, fatigue, all of that. And, and this glitch, right? So they're just saying, well, there's some kind of mistake here mm-hmm. that's, that's causing this to happen yeah. without kind of looking behind. Maybe there's some other reason that might be provoking that. Um, <clears throat> is there a, a rationale that like conventional medical wisdom would say is the reason that some people get this and some people don't? Like, is there a genetic aspect to it or is there a lifestyle aspect to it? Yeah. I mean, there's, that's, that's a question that, that most rheumatologists are, are really, um, they're, they're really hesitant to respond to. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem with, with, with allopathic medicine in general. And the fact that we live in such a litigious environment that, um, most doctors are very, very, very um, hesitant to, to make a claim and say, this is what is causing this, or this is what I believe is causing mm-hmm. this. Because if, if they turn out not to be right, then they can be sued for malpractice and all sorts of other things. <laughs> so that's people, the whole reason you're yeah, going to them. Exactly. No, it's, it's a problem. It's the <laughs> yeah. major problem with the way. We, yeah. yeah. But, you know, they'll, they, they will say things like, well, we don't really know what causes RA, but uh, there are some, you know, there, there are some suggestions that might be caused by... Um, by bacterial infection or a viral infection at some point, or it could be caused by, uh, by you could be genetically predisposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there does seem to be a prevalence of, uh, of mothers who have RA, who have children who have RA. Of course, when I look at that, I look at that as, as, uh, as, as nurture, not nature. This is mm-hmm. the, the environment in which... Yeah, what the, kind of environment exactly. are you living in? If, you're, if, if you have a, are living in a toxic environment and you're sick, in all likelihood, the children you raise in that environment are also going to be sick. And mm-hmm. it's not because you are predisposed or they are predisposed to that, that to, to being sick, but rather that the environment in which we've, we were, we're growing up. Or to the extent to that there is a genetic aspect to it, that the environment helps that genetic predisposition get more fully right. expressed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And how many young people get rheumatoid arthritis? More and more. I mean, it's amazing, you know, and, and, and RA is, there's sort of a family of these autoimmune diseases. Um, there, there's, there's rheumatoid arthritis, or RA as we call it. Um, 
there's Crohn's and colitis mm-hmm. and um, ulcerative colitis. So these yeah, are all so MS. Interesting because yeah, you think of it just being like related more to something like carpal tunnel than yeah. you would to ulcerative colitis. But you know, I have lots of friends that deal with these kind of digestive yeah. problems. You know, it's becoming a much more prevalent thing. Way more prevalent. I and mean, we have to we ask ourselves kids, why. Did you know anybody that, you know, like nobody suffered no. from this kind of stuff? And now who do you know? I mean, to, and just to name a few, I mean, like colitis and MS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure that you and I, between the two of us, we could name like 10 or 15 people mm-hmm. within our immediate circle that have some sort of, whether it's psoriasis, MS, or or they're touched by it, or they have, they have um, autism spectrum children, or mm-hmm. w- whatever the case may be. All of these modern diseases, which are definitely... Uh, part of it, we're more aware of it, but I think definitely much more prevalent than they were when we were younger. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right, so so you get this battery of prescriptions, yep. and you start taking these medications, I presume, yep. right? Yep, and, and and I get sick. I mean, I sick. really Did get it sick. Did it alleviate it, though, at the it, same time? Or? Yes, so, so two things happen. One, um, the acute flare-ups, as they call them, um, stopped happening or, mm-hmm. or became much, much more infrequent. The general malaise didn't really get any better. Um, and then I just felt, you know, crummy all the time. Like my hands were so swollen in the morning. I could barely button my shirt, uh, at work. I'd often like, wouldn't be able to hold a knife because my hands hurt so much. Uh, sometimes I'd get an ache in, in a joint, like on my pinky toe that felt literally like someone was, had put a nail through my pinky toe. So it was so mm-hmm. distracting and painful and just this one very small part of my body that it would make the rest of my day, you know dysfunctional. Wow. Um, but the, what the drugs did do is they, they, they kept me out of the hospital for the most part with those major, major, um, attacks that I was getting in my joint before, but they also severely wake, weakened my immune system. So I would get sick really, really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're taking an immunosuppressant, it makes it very easy to, yeah, to, to get sick. Whatever's exactly. going on, your body can't react to yeah. it to combat it. And what's, you know, what, what's really sad about that is that, um, you know, there's so much money to be made on, obviously, in the pharmaceutical industry and particularly with, with biologic drugs. Um, but what they do is while they do take care of the symptoms, they actually make the disease a lot worse because they're doing they're 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 combating the, the exact source of the problem, which is the immune system. Mm-hmm. So they're compromising the immune system even more, which is already what needs to be fixed. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that's that's sort of endemic, though. I mean, you know, and it pretty much every single sort of prescriptive drug out there is treating symptoms and not mm-hmm. underlying. I mean, it makes me crazy when you see something like, I mean, Viagra, for example, right? right? Like if you have erectile dysfunction, that's the canary in the coal mine. That's mm-hmm. your body telling you that that very tiny artery uh, is not receiving blood flow, which is your body's way of saying that you're, you quite possibly have you know, you're on a crash course with heart disease. Exactly. And you might want to look at that, but you take the blue pill and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. And then, right. you know, the heart attack looms in the future. Exactly. So it's actually preventing you from getting healthy. Yeah. Because no, it's, it's removing the, the warning sign. The, and that's the exact problem that I was going through is that when, when you're taking all of these things that, that, that do symptomatically make things a little bit more livable, then you don't really you address know, like, it. Right, it's cool. Yeah. 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 I can deal with it. I can right. deal with it. And I did get to the point where, you know, there, I, I, for me, there was a, there was a big um, element of, of just feeling completely overwhelmed and exasperated, too. Uh, where I just wanted to, okay, you know, if I take the pill, I'll feel a little bit better and I can get on with my life and I don't have to, Mm -hmm. I'll deal with this later. I'll deal Mm -hmm. with this later. I just don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the capacity. And, and the reality was I also didn't know that I could 
improve my situation. Right. That was a huge. Yeah, you didn't huge... have anybody in your corner who was empowering you, or or who believed actually that this could be positively resolved. Absolutely not. No, I was completely at the behest of the medical community, which really is not very good at. I mean, it's great at dealing with acute trauma and terrible at dealing with chronic chronic disease. Mm-hmm. So, where do you kind of hit bottom with this? I, I hit bottom, um, you know, I kind of hit the bottom and then I bounced off the bottom a few times. So I, mm-hmm. I hit bottom and then I kind of came up a little bit. The first real nail hitting bottom was um, I was on vacation. Uh, my wife and I had gone to um, to Thailand for a friend's wedding. And uh, think about how bad this is. I went to Thailand for two weeks and I don't remember any of it. <laughs> that's that's how bad. I mean, like how I mean, I've been fortunately I've been to Thailand before, but yeah, I went there for two weeks and I don't. Well, that could mean it. That could mean a couple yeah. I suppose things. it could. Yeah. yeah, it depends on what movie you're, following, what script <laughs> yeah. you're reading. But the, uh, yeah, yeah, in my life story, that yeah. means it's something probably very different. exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. So I, 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 we got to Thailand. I'd been there for two days, and uh, I was having breakfast with some friends in the hotel. And the next thing I knew, it was like twelve hours later, and I was in the hospital, mm. and I'd had a grand mal seizure um, in the uh, in 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 the hotel. And my brain was so scrambled from that that I really, I don't remember anything from those two weeks or very little. Um, and it turns out that was caused by two, two medications that were prescribed to me mm. by, by, um, one by a neurologist and one by a rheumatologist. So it was the, it was the intermixing of those yeah. two things. I mean, what is, what is a grand mal seizure? The only time I ever hear that described is also like detoxing off of, you know, when you're kind of detoxing off of alcohol, that becomes a, oh, really? a problem I for, didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah. for like a real alcoholic. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, it's, I don't really know that much about it. Um, you know, it's similar to, to an epileptic seizure. It goes on for a long period of time. Your brain, there's, there's some sort of neurological inflammation and, and, and disconnect in your brain and, and, uh, the nervous system goes haywire. Um, so, you know, I think from, I don't know because I, I was not there. I don't remember any right, of it. So you, honestly, don't have, you don't have any memory of the no, actual experience of having that. No, but the, from, from what my wife told me and everyone else, they sort of, they watched it happen and it was sort of the classic, my eyes rolled in the back in the back of my mm-hmm. head. And then I just started convulsing and wouldn't stop convulsing for like 10 minutes or so. So it went on a long time. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that happened and I, I kind of bounced back from that and I was, that was kind of bouncing off the floor of the, the rock bottom and I got a little bit better. And about a month and a half later, um, I was filming some TV, a TV segment and I developed this, this headache that was unlike a headache I'd ever had before. I mean, it was like a searing, searing headache that, that just came on out of nowhere and progressively got worse and within an hour and a half, I had a very high fever. Um, so I called my doctor, and he said to go straight to the ER. And I got there. And by the time I got there, my fever had gone up to 105. Wow. And then it went up to 106. And can't uh, really get much higher than that. No, <laughs> I can't even believe it got that high. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a moment where I literally had one of those, you know, people talk about seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I was in that tunnel, and there were two directions I could go. I could float up towards this light which is a very peaceful and, and, and enticing place to go that required no battle whatsoever, where I could dig my nails in and grip and, and pull myself back away from that. And I had this, I mean, I remember it very clearly. I had this moment where I just was like, I'm not, it's not my time to go. I'm not, I'm not going to really, die right now. So you really had like I had that whole life experience. Yeah. And I crawled back in my brain. I crawled back and suddenly all the noises in the ER uh, got louder and louder and louder. Wow. And I could start to see faces and, 
And then the next day, I remember the doctor coming to me and saying, you know, we almost lost you. And I said, no, I, I know I was there. And I remembered it very, very vividly. And that was that moment where I kind of decided this is the end. Mm-hmm. I cannot live my life like this. I cannot live my life never knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, if I'm going to be in the hospital tomorrow, if, if, the, if the wheels are going to completely fall off the wagon. And, um, and I made a commitment to myself then that I would do whatever it took. The, the big problem for me was that I, didn't, I had no idea what it was. I mean, I had, I had committed to myself that I was going to get better, but I didn't know what that meant. And uh, so it took a couple of, of, you know, over the next six months, I had a, a few really, really um, revolution, re, re, revelatory moments with, thanks to other people that, that really started setting me on, set me on my path. Well, a couple observations. The first is this sort of glossing over of the near-death experience, (laughs) which could be its own podcast. We might have to have you back just to talk about that, you know? Have you heard of this uh, neurologist named um, Dr. Evan... Frick, I'm forgetting his last name. Evan, no, I, I want to say Evan Alexander. I'm not sure, but uh-huh. anyway, he's like a Harvard-trained neurologist. Oh, I who have. Had, who had he had a near-death near, experience. Right, yes, he went, yes, he yes, went yes. into a coma, and he had this, and he wrote a whole book about yeah, it. Yeah, and, like, and he was a total skeptic until right. he actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I just met him at another one of these wellness conferences, and mm-hmm. he gave me his book, which I just started reading. But yeah, he was a super skeptic, and then he was in a um, coma for like seven days. But during that period of time, he experienced it as a much longer period of time. Right, he had all this vivid experience. That now his whole perspective on everything in life has changed. But anyway, it's amazing. That's a whole yeah, no, thing. The, but like the power of the mind is incredible. I mean, the fact that you had that, like you, I mean, you were out of it, but mm-hmm. you had that, you know, vivid experience that you recollect. You it was, know, it with was incredibly lucid. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. A, it was, and it was a moment. I wasn't even in that moment that I that I was like, oh, I have to fix myself and I got to get better. It was more like, uh, here are two choices. I can either go the easy route, which is just to let go. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I know, and I knew then that letting go meant I was going to die. Or I could fight. And the weird thing about the fighting aspect is that it wasn't like a, it's a physical struggle. But it really, when I think about it, it was kind of like being, you know, hanging off the edge of a cliff or something. And you're holding on for dear life. And you can feel your fingers slipping away. And you're down to like two fingers. And you can either just slip away and finally relax because you're just at that you're at that very last moment when your body can't anymore, or you can just suck it up and dig in and mm-hmm. find it, you know, somewhere to pull yourself up back up over the cliff. Mm-hmm. And that's what the that's what that moment was like. It was really really remarkable. That's interesting. All right, so you come out of that and you're like, I gotta, I gotta, do I gotta change different. my life. So yeah. first of all, you gotta fire your doctor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this guy's not. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last time I went yeah. to see him. Actually, right, yeah. yeah, that was the end. And what leads you to Frank? So, you know, well, first, first, I before I even met Frank, I met this guy named Ari Mizell, who who I didn't meet, but I saw a podcast that he did, or rather, I saw a, um, a TEDx talk he gave. Um, and in it, he had been living with Crohn's for a number of years, and he had managed to turn it around through diet, exercise, supplementation. Mm-hmm. He got off of all of his meds, and to you know, to the complete disbelief of his doctors, no longer had any signs of Crohn's in his in his bloods. Um, and so I, I watched his talk, which was really just kind of about his experience, and it 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 was this moment where I saw it, and I was like, God, I really want to be this guy. This guy did it. Then if he did it, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. You know, he he went from being hospitalized a year later to doing an Ironman. So if he could do it, I could do it too, right? Um, and I got to meet him, uh, and he became friends. 
Um, and the most important aspect of all this was really just learning that was the inspirational element of, of, of knowing somebody who'd gone through a very similar mm -hmm. experience and knew what it was like to feel helpless and knew what it was like to feel self-pity and anger and depression and all these things that come along with being chronically sick. Um, and, and was, was very supportive. Um, and it wasn't so much that he was like, Oh, take this supplement and do this and don't eat that. It was more that just, he, he had done it himself and mm -hmm. I was going to have to figure out my own path, but there was, there was some, there was some, uh, there was some inspiration. So yeah. I met him and I met and Frank little, shortly after a little, that. A little accountability too. Yeah, accountability like too, yeah. To, say, to bounce ideas off of or somebody who at least could hold that belief that maybe yeah. you do have the power to resolve this for yourself. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. And you just reached out to him randomly after seeing the video? Or? Actually, no. So the way it happened, it, it, he he's actually very good friends with, with a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And my friend had seen what I was going through and said, you've got to meet Ari. Ah, gotcha. You really got to meet him because uh, you guys have gone. He went through a very similar thing. And mm -hmm. I when he told me that I was like the end of all you when you're when you're not well you get so much unsolicited advice about what you should and shouldn't do <laughs> oh you got to eat cherry you got to drink cherry juice and you got to yeah. stop eating this, Everybody, that, everybody's an expert on your exactly right? yeah. when they have no idea what it's like to, to, to be in your shoes uh -huh. and that makes you know it, it makes you pretty jaded honestly like yeah. at this point I you know I never offer advice to people unless they really ask me for it uh, I'm happy to, 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 to share my experience and I'm happy to, to be as empathetic as I can, but I'm not going to offer any advice to anyone until they come and ask for it mm -hmm. because it's, I feel like it's just not appropriate and, mm -hmm. and people aren't really ready to change until they're ready to do it. Mm -hmm. So for me to try to impose my own values or my own, my own experience upon them, it may not, what works for me may not necessarily mm -hmm. work for someone else either. But, but that was, you know, that was a moment where Ari kind of got me to think about the fact that what I was living through RA or Crohn's or whatever you wanted to call it, or colitis or MS or any of these diseases, which are all have the same root cause that if, if you just try to deal with the symptoms, you're never going to get better. Um, if you kind of re you, you give birth to yourself in a new way, you bring your body back to where it's meant to be and you really care for your body that then you set yourself up for success and you, mm -hmm. you, you stack the cards in your favor. If you're constantly getting in the way of your immune system and getting in the way of your body, your body wants to, it wants to heal itself. It doesn't want to be sick. Mm -hmm. You know, our bodies do not want to be sick, but we, we put up so many hurdles and roadblocks that make it really hard for our body to do its job and to be, to be healthy. And so what he was kind of pointing out to me was that if we can start to remove some of those roadblocks and clear things up and, and, and then also get that tailwind because that's what you want is you want a little bit of tailwind behind you so your body can do do what it does best and that was the beginning and then and then i was very uh, i was fortuitous to meet frank Lippman, um who i'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with mm -hmm. well i've had um, him on the podcast oh great awesome yeah, then yeah. they should definitely been, it was a while ago but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah so I, I just had dinner with frank last night oh, you he's, did? Cool. yeah he's, he's you're going are you going out to see him this weekend yeah i'm gonna see him this weekend we're um we're gonna uh talk at the uh, bank of america wellness retreat um and in, in montauk very cool which will be nice to get out there we'll say hi to frank i definitely will um, so I met Frank and Frank was, was, um, was super cool. You know, I didn't think I was going to see him as a doctor. Um, I met him socially. Uh, but as soon as I, I, I met him, he took a, a deep interest in, in me. I think he saw, he saw how sick I was. You could see in my face, he saw mm -hmm. how inflamed I was. He could tell that I was not well. 
good God, man, what yeah. are you doing? You know, what are you even doing worse. To yourself? You're doing to yourself. <laughs> you look like shit, mate. You look terrible. Yeah, and his South African yeah. accent. Um, no, but what he did say, which is amazing, he looked at me and said, It's a shame. It's a shame what you've gone through. That mm. I had suffered so unnecessar- unnecessarily that, that really, that what I was dealing with and what I was living through was totally not necessary. You know, I didn't have to live that way. I didn't have to be suffering from RA. I didn't have to be going through all of these issues that I was going through for years and years and years. Um, if, if Western medicine had just not been so arrogant and mm. if I had, you know, if I had met him 15 years earlier, uh, things would have been a lot different. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he, what he made very clear to me was that he wasn't interested in treating rheumatoid arthritis or anything. He didn't even really want to call it RA. Um, he, he wanted to treat this underlying issue, which is the, the, the immune system or, or, you know, as he refers to it as the gut, which is really treating the microbiome as the driving force behind the majority of, of modern disease um, and rebalancing our, our relationship with our bacteria and developing uh, a much more, you know, re- reversing this dysbiosis that I was experiencing and been living through for years and years and years that I was totally unaware of mm-hmm. um, as, as it was being driven by probably by uh, a number of factors from infection to overuse of antibiotics to bad diet to um, to all sorts of issues, yeah. but you know you take all those antibiotics a lot as a kid. I well, I didn't until I was a teenager, and then I did a lot, mm-hmm. um, and I started getting sick a lot as a teenager. So I would get you know pneumonia, which is not very common for teenagers to get, or bronchitis. And every time I had you know some sort of infection mm-hmm. or or illness, boom, take right. you know even if it's moxicillin, vir- even if it's viral, even if it's viral, yeah, they would just did throw you it take at you. Uh, tetracycline for acne because so many. I did not, but I know a lot of kids. I didn't. Yeah. I was lucky. I didn't have. I didn't have acne, but I know that a lot of people that that do take that. And the the, the real the the horrible thing about that is that. They're making it worse. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes acne is, is driven by a dysbiosis in the gut. And then you take this really powerful antibiotic that is just going to wipe out the majority of the good bacteria they need to have in your gut. So um, he, he, he helped me kind of reevaluate the way I was living my life. And then through, you know, a bunch of different tools, I'll call them, you know, some being actually being, believe it or not, antibiotics for a short period of time because I did have a pretty serious infection that we had to clear up. Um, but then switching to a very, very, uh, strong pre and probiotic, um, protocol and, and, uh, healing the gut lining and trying to, to, to close up, um, uh, the, you know, over porous leaky gut mm-hmm. and, um, and then cleaning up my diet and just trying to get me healthy. And a, a large component of that, too, was also mental health, understanding the importance of, of letting go of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Well, it's, it's almost uh, an Ayurvedic approach mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, the body is composed of energy systems. And if these, are, if these systems are out of balance, you're, you're headed towards dis-ease. Yes, right? Like exactly. you, are, you are in dis-ease. And so how do we bring this back into balance? And, yeah. and you know, it's interesting that that you know the gut biome it's it's now sort of at the advent of mm-hmm. you know everybody's <clears throat> you know it's on the tip of everyone's tongue it's kind of this zeitgeist thing in the medical field but it wasn't that long ago that you know that was a crazy idea totally crazy idea so uh so how do you even begin to parse that out i mean do, do you, does he take like a sample from your gut biome and figure out what's in there and what's missing and what's bad and how, like what's the difference between good and bad and how do yeah. you figure that out yeah no it's hard i mean it's not and it's not as simple as saying this is good bacteria and this is bad bacteria you know, they're, they're kind of two families, if you will, of bacteria and having the right balance of, of both.
both is important. It's it's kind of like saying, uh, well, you can't say that omega-3 fatty acids are good and omega-6s are bad. They're both necessary, but if you don't have them in the right, right balance, ratio. exactly. So, it, yeah, I mean, we we can test the, the, the gut biome as we did. We can do all those sorts of things, but it's ultimately right now kind of more flying, flying blind. It's a lot of intuitive response. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health from fermented food, to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code RICHROLL25. And Frank kind of started with me. We started together, and then I I really just like took off on my own and just threw myself into this a thousand percent. And um, my approach, you know, I, I, saw, I saw him on a weekly basis, if not bi-weekly basis, for a very, very long time. Um, but I also was, I, I changed the way I thought about working with a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, which was, not this, the, the notion that I'd really been mired in for a long time was that I got sick and I would go to the doctor and the doctor would treat me and then I'd go about doing everything else in my life. And that was it. Like I, de- I dealt with the treatment. Now mm-hmm. I can go back to doing everything else in my life. Um, and Frank really got me to realize that, no, if I wanted to really care for this, it had to be a whole package. So it meant that every decision I was making throughout the day really was made with the, the, um, the, the background of my health in mind. So always thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So whether that's the food that I was eating throughout the day or uh, my stress levels or how much rest I was getting, all of these things in, in conjunction with the supplementation that I was doing and and any other treatment that I was doing with him. So it was, it was this notion that I had to be, I had to have full buy-in and I had to be an active participant in my own well-being. Yeah, you have to take ownership of it and understand yep. that you're in partnership with your doctor. Exactly. Right? And that He's not the person giving you the answers. He's only as effective uh, as, you know, his ability to be effective to you is in direct proportionate to your willingness to engage in the process and communicate and follow through and all that kind of stuff. It's like a good coach. Right. You know, a good coach that you do the work, the coach can help you. But while you're doing the work, you might figure out oh, I can change my stride a little bit like this. Or, or if I, you know, if I accelerate right now or change my cadence slightly, you, you learn things on your own as you're doing it, but the coach is there to kind of guide you and give you some structure. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do the work, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You can get your <laughs> yeah. weekly workouts and never do uh-huh. them. 
and uh, <laughs> and it looks it looks great in your emails, yeah. and it looks great to everyone else. But if you're not doing them, you would make no progress. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and also important to understand that this is not going to be a, an overnight thing. No, like you're on you're on a long road that is about a lifestyle change, mm-hmm. and you know, sort of being open ended as to where it would lead and adjusting and understanding that this is now your life. This is exactly not something with a destination, you know, in mind of oh, I I. I heal this or I resolve this issue and then I can go back to living the way I was living before. Yeah, I think that's that's indicative of one of the one of the problems of setting goals. You set these goals and then there's this notion that mm-hmm. okay, then I've accomplished this, now it's done. I can check that off my list. And you can't do that with your health mm-hmm. because you're you're I mean, our, we're changing every moment. You know, our cells are changing every moment. And if we want to thrive in that change, we have to also be changing every moment and we have to be aware of it. And it's an ongoing process. You know, you aren't, you're not arriving at at good health finally. And you didn't arrive overnight at bad health. Mm -hmm. It was a slow and insidious process. And to, to get out of that, 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 that deep hole, it's going to be a slow and intentional process. And you have to kind of go through that Mm -hmm. and be willing to, and and in our, our environment, our culture is very much based on, we want what we want and we want it right now. You know, we want our Amazon Prime mm-hmm. to delivered tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We want our Netflix on demand right now. We want all of those things. We want the biohack that's going to yeah, exactly. deliver the result immediately, right now. <laughs> and I and I, you know, I think there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of talk now um, that you know, in the in the one of the next and most exciting future treatments is is fecal transplant, mm-hmm. and people are really excited about it. And I think it's really it's very cool because it does have it's a it's it opens up a whole world of of potential that we haven't seen to date. But the expectation that you're going to take a poo pill and tomorrow have like a great microbiome is also not, you know, that's right. not, that's just as bad as thinking you can just take a, um, a lot of people switch the supplements, the, the, the drugs for the supplements and they become hooked on the supplements when ultimately the goal is to get your body to a point where you take things that you might need periodically, but you really are at a, sta- a place of homeostasis. It's human nature. You know, we just, we want that one thing and what's the next thing. And, right. you know, we're always looking for what's going to be the next thing. And so when we were at the Revitalize conference, we both got to hear Dr. Robin Shukan yeah. speak, and she's this expert doctor on the mi- on the microbiome, gut biome. She's amazing. She's like, incredible. She's incre- she's I know you so had a long cool. talk with her after. Yeah, yeah. she's so cool. I, I, she really is cool, and I've got to get her on the podcast. Yeah, too. she's like a firecracker, right? Um, but she pointed out something in her talk about she could foresee like these beautiful salons yeah, that people exactly. would go in and it would all be very she-she, you know, sort of yeah. Madison Avenue and people would get their fecal transplants. <laughs> these beautiful little know, vials. Like, yeah. yeah, They'd be it's branded kind of, with, you yeah. know, bizarre, like dystopian future. Yeah. But I can see that happening. You totally. Know? Just like, there, listen, there were oxygen bars you yeah. know, in Los Angeles not too long ago. So it's like anything's possible. But I think you're, yeah, that's very astute that... Look, this—that's—that's that's the thing everyone's going to go to and right. think that they've solved the problem, but it just doesn't—it doesn't work that way. Like, it really involves you know a comprehensive approach to every yeah. aspect of of how you're living your life. If you ha- want to have any expectation that any of these one things, which all in their own right play a part, yep. But if you want them to function properly and, and maximally, that you know you have to have that global approach to your health. Yeah, no, it's totally true, and I, I get you know I, I'm very very lucky in that. Uh, you know, I, I have regained my health and I feel really, really wonderful. And I'd forgotten what it was like to, I mean, being a healthy human being is a wonderful thing. 
it's a really remarkable gift that we have. Um, being able to play outside on a bicycle or jump in the ocean and go swimming and feel good about doing those things or eating really good food or hanging out with the kids or any of that stuff. Those are, those are really amazing things to be able to do in a body that wants to do them. And I'd forgotten that Mm -hmm. I'd forgotten what that was like. Um, but we, uh, you know, we really do need to understand that it is an ongoing process and you've got to, you have to, you have to look at your body as, as you, you can't separate your, your everyday life from your body. You experience your everyday life in your body, which means you really need to be constantly caring for it. Um, and the decisions that you make will really impact your ability to, to have a wonderful life in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and if we expect that we can just kind of take a pill, we can do whatever we want and abuse our bodies and do everything and then, and then just take a pill and everything's going to be fine, regardless of whether that pill is a pharmaceutical pill or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a poo pill. You know, it doesn't matter. Like you have to, you can use tools as you go and as you need them, but if you become dependent upon expecting one tool to change everything, you're really setting yourself up for, for a big, big disappointment. Yeah, and whether you feel lousy or great, the ripple effect of that is you know, unfathomable. It, it impacts every single microsecond of every single day yeah. and how you interact with people and then how they then you know interact with you and their perception of you you know through throughout your relationships your marriage your kids your profession you know totally. like every aspect of it is indelibly you know marked by your emotional state your physical state all yeah. of that and so you know i i don't know i just think that 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 we don't think of that enough in its most comprehensive sense it's true so and that's what somebody like like frank can really bring to the surface like oh this is not just this isn't one thing you know it's like it's it's symptomatic it's funny it's symptomatic but it's symptomatic of this reductionist approach to medicine which is you know medicine by its very nature has to be reductionist Mm -hmm. as a means of trying to understand it but that also gets in the way of how we address these health problems sure. because we're complex systems. Yeah, we're not just a hand. You know, we're not just like an eyeball. So you can't just look at what's going on in your hand without looking at the, the greater system. I mean, we are these complex systems. And and one of the, 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 the problems that I think we've gotten into with allopathic medicine through the 20th century is that we treat things in verticals and, and in highly specialized verticals. So they're, they're, they, these are all the sets of symptoms that... that fall into my area of expertise as a, you know, as an, as a, as a, as a hand specialist and mm-hmm. as a GI doctor, these are all the symptoms that fall into my area of expertise. And what I find often ends up happening with a lot of people who are ill is that they, they might end up going to see an immunologist or whoever they might see. And that person looks at what they're going through and tries to fit their symptoms to what their, their knowledge base mm-hmm. is without looking at, okay, well, that's related. Let's connect the dots. Let's look at the whole system and see everything that's going on within the body. And, and, uh, and, and it really is, I mean, I think it's the future of medicine to look at things in a much more broad, broad element and not only, and, and to, to, to also start to look at the correlation between mental health and, and, and the gut biome and mental health and the physical health of the mm-hmm. body. Um, you mentioned something that, that made me think about this idea that has been resonating in my mind, kind of rebounding in my mind for the past few years, that we, uh, we talk about um, disease. We've always think, thought of disease as being something that's contagious. You, know, you, you, catch a, you, catch, you can catch a disease or you can catch a virus or catch a bacterial infection from someone. Um, but you, I, I've really started to look at, at health as being contagious in a way that 
when when you start to make really really good and considered choices about your own well-being the people around you take notice and they start doing the same thing as well mm-hmm. they start asking the same they're like oh that's a good idea. Maybe I should do that as well. And sometimes it's through pressure. It's through a little bit of peer pressure. Like mm. they feel guilty about eating a bag of potato chips. Like I see this with my, my cooks around me. Like they feel guilty about eating a bag of potato mm-hmm. chips in front of me, but that's okay. I'm okay with that kind of a little bit of guilt like that. But then I see them doing like, I have um, my, my, my chef de cuisine, who's a great guy who's been working with me for a long time. And he, he's kind of my, my right hand. Um, he's, you know, as, as I become more and more and more enthusiastic about understanding the gut biome and, and the importance of, of bacteria in, in our health, he's like gone way deep on fermenting vegetables. Mm-hmm. And so like, he's like the fermenting, if it can be fermented, he's fermenting it. Interesting. And he's all about, you know, um, about integrating some fermented vegetables into, into his daily diet wow. for, for health. And that's I just think great. that's really cool. Cause I see that. And that's just sort of like, that's another example of how health can really be contagious and leading a healthy lifestyle can inspire other people to leave a, lead a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. There's no question about it. You know, I think that's, that's beautifully articulated. And it's that's important. A, that's a great ethos, I think, to kind of carry around with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So how long did it take before you, you balanced out? Well, it was, so it's still happening. Right. It's still going on and it's going to be going on for as long as I'm around until I become compost, I think. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, but it, it took, you know, it took six months before I actually noticed any change for the first six months. I still felt exactly the same. Did you, I mean, that's a long time to yeah. feel, continue to feel lousy and maintain hope that yeah. there's going to be a light at the end of this tunnel. Yeah. I, and, and there were definitely times that I kind of thought, what's the point? I'm not getting any better. This is not changing. And I think the thing that really um, that really helped me in this was that I did see Frank so frequently, uh, and he was really supportive and said, "Listen, don't despair. It is going to take time, but please, please, please trust me that if you continue at it and you stay, you know, you stay focused and you're disciplined, you are going to see change. And it may not be." A 90% or 100% change, it'll probably be somewhere between, he kept saying between 30 and 90%. That's what we're looking for, a 30 to 90% recovery. But he had conviction that, that there would be improvement. There would be improvement. And that's interesting. You know, I, I can't remember whether I told you this story the other day, but my wife, Julie, she healed herself yeah, of, a, was, of a cyst on her neck, right? Yeah, and so thyroid, yeah. her Ayurvedic doctor, who, you know, really in many ways is not dissimilar from the protocols that Frank mm-hmm. prescribes, you know, is basically like, it's a comprehensive approach of, you know, sort of de You can eat this, you can and, eat that. And yeah. yeah, and like some crazy herbs and, you know, some yeah. wacky stuff in there. But essentially, you know, not really that far left of field. But But the point that I'm trying to make is that this Ayurvedic doctor basically said, it, it wasn't like, well, try this and we'll see how it goes. You know, I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, it should work, but you know, we'll just, we'll just, you know, evaluate it in six months. This guy was like, no, this, 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 he, he had, there was no doubt in his Total mind. conviction, yeah. Complete conviction. And whether that's placebo or not, it doesn't matter to have somebody like that who believes in you, because when it is going to take a long time, like you need to, you need to be able to hold on to something yep. like that. And this guy was like, no, this, this, there was no doubt in his mind, yep. you know, so I think that was what Julie was able to hold on to. Right. Because it took her like nine months. You know, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a long time. But she completely made, made assist disappear, which right. is virtually unheard of in yeah. Western medicine. I mean, he's, the, every single specialist said it was impossible. Yeah. Impossible. You know, so, 
you know, it just makes you, it broadens your horizon as to, you know, how you think about these systems in yep. terms of, of health. I mean, and, and, in de- and in kind of going through this protocol with Frank, I mean, were you doing, you know, acupuncture and mm. meditation and what other aspects of your lifestyle were kind of, you know, altered through new modalities? Yeah. So, I mean, I was doing acupuncture with Frank um, at least once a week and I would, uh, it's a pretty amazing experience having, I don't know if you've had needles from Frank, but it's a really cool experience. Not from Frank, but I've had acupuncture, but yeah. not with Frank. So he, he does, you know, he, he puts in the needles and you get in a really comfortable place. And then he puts on like some noise canceling headphones with, with some just beautiful sounds, whether it might be just birds or ocean or something. And, uh, turns the light off and you're in complete darkness. And then you lie there for like 45 minutes with yourself mm-hmm. needled. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I experimented. Not roll over. Yeah. No, you don't want to move. No, I, I, yeah, no, I never, I was always worried that I might find an extra needle in my shirt when I got back to work or something. But, um, no, I, I would, I would experiment in those, those moments, those 45 minutes or sometimes longer sitting with, with, um, lying there with, with needles, I would do different things. Like I would, I, I practice some, some breathing techniques and I would do box breathing and I would try some, 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 um, uh, mindfulness, uh, body scanning, things like that. But the thing that I found to be most interesting and most therapeutic for me was to just envision all the points at which I had contact with needles and just kind of become extremely aware of my body. And in doing that, like you could, I could feel myself breathing into the, into each point. Mm. Um, and, and that was, that was a remarkable moment just to cleanse myself completely of everything else that was going on in the world. Like it didn't, I didn't care if my phone was ringing somewhere. I didn't care if, uh, you know, if I had a bill that was due, I didn't care if, so, you know, I was getting a million emails. It was just that moment to be there. And that was really, really, really important. So yeah, I did a little bit of, of that. Mostly what I did with him was, was acupuncture and, and herbs and supplementation and, mm-hmm. and diet. There was, there was a lot of, um, also, just a lot, a lot of uh, same thing with Julie. I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of like just belief that I was going to get better, mm-hmm. and and the confidence that he had that I was going to improve made it much much easier for me to, to have buy in mm-hmm. and to really believe it. Stick with it. Yeah, and and I think the other part that was really huge for me is that even going back, you know, a year before I felt better was when I had first seen that that um, TEDx talk that Ari Ari gave. I had at that point planted the seed in my brain that I could get better. So I believed it. Mm-hmm. And even through those six months where I didn't feel better, I still believed it. I, I still believed that I could get better. And I think that if you don't actually believe in your own ability to, to be well, you can't, you'll never get better. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to believe, and it doesn't mean that you can believe it has to start with, I mean, it has to start with this, this very positive the, um, outlook where you, you just have to get past feeling like a victim and you have to get past feeling a sense of hopelessness and self-pity because those are very easy traps to get caught in. Um, and it's not easy to get past them. And for me to get past them, it took Frank telling me, I'm going to get you better. I actually didn't say it like that. He said, we're going to get you better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the, that was the first That's huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference. We're yeah. Gonna, we're going to get, better. yeah. And that was, yeah. And that was something that was very different from what doctors in the past had said, which is like, I can give you this drug and or, I can give you that drug. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But he kept pointing out, he's like, we're going to do this. You're going to have to do all the work. It's going to be really hard for you, but we'll be, we'll go through this together. Mm. So it was six months. And then I woke up one day and literally, and he even told me though, he told me, he said, I think it'll take about six months. 
And it was remarkable because it literally was six months almost to the day that I woke up and I walked down our stairs. We have a really large uh, spiral staircase in our apartment. And I used to hobble down it one step at a time. And I was walking down the stairs, no handrail, like a normal human being. And I got halfway down the stairs and was like, oh, my God, I'm actually walking down the stairs Mm -hmm. and I don't hurt. And my wife was on the, on the ground floor and she looked up at me and she's, she just like, I can still remember her. She had like an apple in her mouth and she just kind of stopped chewing and was staring at me. And I said, it doesn't hurt. I feel good. Mm. And she had only ever known me as a sick person. And she immediately started crying. I mean, that was like, she couldn't believe it. And I was like, I was totally worried that I wasn't going to make it to the bottom of the stairs without it coming back and out, you know, without things going, going south again. But what's amazing is that was, you know, over two years ago and I've had nothing but positive change since then. Wow. So you don't get occasional flare ups or things like that anymore? Nothing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I'm actually just about, I just, uh, did another set of blood work. I haven't done blood work in about about a year, but I just did another set of blood work. Blood work. And I'm waiting for those results, um, and I also got my my uh, my microbiome checked. Um, but I, and I'm curious to see what the results are. But the last time I was checked, everything is completely normal and healthy, um, and I feel even better than I did then. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine. You know, I'm sure I'm I'm doing totally fine. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Well, a big part of this also is is the diet aspect of, yeah. of it, and you know, in, in in the most general sense, I suppose I would characterize that as just a return to whole food, mm-hmm. right? I mean, real cooking, yeah, and that can mean a lot of different things. I mean, you know, I I um, I, I I believe that if we eschew foods that are are adulterated and taken away from their original their their original source their original their um their 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 original content how they how you know whether it's using an excessive amount like even you look at a lot of the gluten-free foods that are out there they're they're just Mm -hmm. as bad as foods that are full of gluten yeah highly processed so if you can if you can kind of return to a very um natural way of of relating to food whether it's um cooking, whatever that means for you as an individual, you know, everyone's very different. Um, and I've found myself, interestingly enough, like I've found myself gravitating more and more towards, uh, towards a plant-based diet, even though I, I don't, I'm not a vegetarian by any stretch of the right. imagination, but I treat one, I only eat meat that I know where it's coming from. And, and I'm very, very careful about the quality of that meat. Um, and, and when I do eat meat, it's like, a Ten percent of the meal, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like it's eighty percent of the meal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think that you know, I mean, that's really a more paleolithic approach, anyway. Yeah. Like this idea, like I don't understand. Like I'm no expert on the paleo diet, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that you, first of all, like whatever paleolithic man was eating was probably highly contingent upon where they lived. But, exactly. But in, in in either case, unless you were living in a place where there was no vegetation and there were only animals, like animals are hard to catch, right? Yeah. So that like that was a rare kind of like exceptional circumstance. Sure, that was north the of animal. the Arctic So circle. for the most part, <laughs> yeah. it was like, a, you know, it would be a delicacy, you know, yeah. on the plate. And so the idea that it's been perverted to this very meat heavy diet, like in its sort of modern incarnation, I think is not really maybe the original idea behind it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and if you look at the blue zones and all these places, like they're not, you know, they're either plant-based or if they're eating meat, like the meat is like a really small, small aspect amount. Yeah. of it. It's a side dish to, you know, a proliferation of yeah. 
it's an ingredient foods. that's no more or less important than the asparagus or the you know anything else that's on a plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there are a lot of people in the paleo movement that that get that. You know, yeah, I think so too. I'm not saying I'm not saying they don't, but it's become like suddenly it's all about like bacon, as if like yeah. you're supposed to eat bacon at every meal. And, right. You know, like right. I don't I don't really understand where that's coming from. Yeah. But I guess people like you know they like to hear that, so that becomes yeah. a popular meme. Yeah. To be able to be told that you can oh this thing that was indulgent we weren't supposed to eat before is actually now I can justify it and, and, and it's really good for me that I'm just going to throw myself whole hog into it you know mm-hmm. pardon the pun I didn't mean that as a pun but right. uh, that that that's that's just as dangerous as as you know any, I mean any ism in general or any any like extreme extreme um, adaptation of, of a, a life with food I think is kind of dangerous too and I think it's I think it's good to go to, to variance too if you look at humans as they evolved like we didn't we ate meat when we could get meat but there was a lot of time times when we couldn't get meat and we ate what we could get which mm-hmm. was you know a lot of fibrous vegetables and tubers and all sorts of other stuff um, and also the foods that we have available to us now are very different from the foods that paleolithic man had. So to draw a complete conclusion, you know, the strawberries we have now are very different from the wild strawberries right. that they might've been, they might've been foraging. Um, well, and certainly the grains and the wheat. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, all of that. Very different. Anything that's been hybridized and then right. forget about and our, and our gut biome adapts to that. Right. So, you know, the foods that you're eating is what's cultivating your gut biome. Absolutely. And then that becomes the foods that, that you crave and that, that ecology in there then demands those foods to survive. So that's, I think that that plays a part in people getting stuck in however they're eating and, oh, and, yeah. and makes it more difficult to change. Oh, without, I mean, if you have a, if you have a proliferation of firmicutes and bacteria in your, in your gut, which, which feed on sugars and starches, refined sugars and starches, you're, you're going to have to eat more to feed them. Mm-hmm. And the more you eat, the greater that population of firmicutes grows, which you know, it's very likely to be one of the driving forces behind obesity. One of the one of the elements that causes obesity, and it certainly causes dysbiosis. Um, whereas, when you're feeding gut bacteria low in your in, in your in your lower intestine and in your in your colon, you have to be eating a lot of fibrous vegetables. And the stuff that we can't actually digest is the stuff that the bacteria is breaking down and eating and and living off of. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, what we eat directly affects how we feed those bugs, and and that affects our performance and our and our health. Right. Well, I like the idea that you're 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 moving more plant based. I dig it. When's yeah. the when's the when's the uh, the uh, vegan restaurant? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be beyond doing something like that uh-huh. at some point. Um, you know, I I think the thing for me that's hardest is that I don't like to. Um, I don't like to. I try to keep food and politics. I know it's hard mm-hmm. to to separate them. Um, but I have a real, I have a real problem when people um, confuse uh, like a moral statement with a health statement, and they make a moral decision about. Like I know a lot of vegans that are really, really unhealthy people, mm-hmm. and their decisions to be vegans come from a position of you know ethics and morality, which I totally get, and I actually am completely in align with. Um, you know, I I I, uh, I look at the state of of um, factory farming and find it appalling, um, and and and. I, I don't want any part of that, and I don't want to support that system in, in any way. And I don't think it's I, I, unlike a lot of paleo people who are just like, well, meat is meat, and you know, it doesn't really matter if it's Hormel pepperoni or if you're getting, uh, you know, uh, you're getting a uh, heritage pig from from a small farm that's raised naturally. I, I don't agree with that. I think there's a huge difference in quality of product and quality of life of that animal. Um, 
but uh, but to that end, like I, I don't like to personally, I don't like to say I, I never would call myself a paleo a, a paleo person or a paleo follower of the paleo plan. I wouldn't say that I'm uh, a gluten free person, and I mean I don't happen to eat grains that have gluten in them, to, but that doesn't mean I want to be labeled as being a gluten-free person. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like these these camps. So I would certainly, I have, you know, in, in, in my restaurants, there are lots of options for people that choose not to eat dairy or choose not to eat grains or choose not to eat uh, meat. But I would never call any one of them. I wouldn't say this is our gluten-free. It yeah. label. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's really tricky. I mean, food, you know, to the extent that you can extract politics from food, you know, is very difficult and, you know, it's very emotional yeah. and, and it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult to even talk about it. Sure. Without, like people getting inflamed, fired up, inflamed, they get so, yeah. getting inflamed. And, and, you know, when you said kind of at the outset of the podcast that you don't like to proselytize and you don't like to give people advice and, you know, you're there to share your experience to the extent that people are interested. Like I kind of share that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'm a little more vociferous because mm-hmm. I have a podcast and, right. and all this sort of stuff. But, but I don't go around taking people's inventory about how they live their lives and I'm saying here. you've got to do no, this. I say yeah. if you're interested, this is what happened to me, and this is how I did it. And, yep. and I and I'm happy to speak to you about that. And I'm happy to have people on the podcast that share my point of view. And I'm happy to have people on that disagree with me. Yeah. That's part of the dialogue. But I think it's important to remain, you know, kind of grounded and mature in those, in those discussions, because when they get inflamed and heated, uh, you know, it turns into like an episode of crossfire on Sunday morning. And it's like, everybody's just kind of preaching to their, to their base. And, and it's not really productive or helpful. You know what I mean? Um, There are huge problems with our food system. You know, we talked about school lunch and certainly nobody is going to disagree that factory farming is an abomination. And, Mm -hmm. You know, it's also incredibly destructive on the environment. It's not sustainable. We're not going to be able to feed the planet this way much longer. You no know, way. Unless we're just so short-sighted that we're just going to run the planet into the ground and then go, uh-oh. You know, which is kind which, of which our is the, MO. That's the way we roll. Like, yeah, that's what we do. We're kind of rats in that you know, sense. So to the extent that, that, you know, you are sourcing your ingredients for your restaurants, you know, sustainably and all of that, like this is a, this is a positive thing. But it does get it does get tricky with the politics and all of that. And yeah. I, and I'm sensitive to that, you know, and I think that to the extent that you are able to accommodate people from all the, I mean, it's getting harder and harder. Well, I don't eat sugar and I don't eat grains and mm-hmm. I'm vegan, but I'm lacto and I mean, it's like, dude, how many subcategories yeah, are there at, exactly. at some point? Right. Um, but I know that you're, you know, real careful about, you know, where you're getting all of your ingredients. from. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really most as local as possible. Yeah. yeah. And that's super, that's really, really important to me. I mean, it's important <clears throat> to me for a number of reasons. It's important because it tastes better ultimately. And it's better for you. I mean, it's just simply better for you to eat food that is in season. You get something that's local, that's harvested ripe, you know, a few days ago versus something that's gassed and put in a box and comes across the ocean. That's not good for your body. Also, the fossil fuels that are involved in bringing it from Peru to New York City, that's not good for the body of the, of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you have very little control over the quality of the grapes that you get from Peru but when I talk to the guy that I get grapes from the Finger Lakes from in the, you know, in the height of summer, I know exactly how he's growing his grapes. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a distinct difference. And it, it forces me to have a relationship with, with not only the food itself, but with the people that, that are growing the food who 
tend to be pretty passionate people because like other aspects of, of the food world, you don't get into it if you just want to yeah, get rich. have to be to be doing that. Yeah, you you're know? not doing it. It's a labor of love. And is this something that has always been a through line through your cooking as a result of the traditions with which you were brought up with, Definitely. with your mom? Or has the, how has the experience of you know weathering you know your disease and, and your kind of recovery from that informed how you approach the kitchen in your restaurants? Well, actually, well, both. Those are two two really interesting points. One, yeah, I definitely growing up, I had this relationship with food because I grew up, you know, planting carrots, harvesting carrots, and cooking the carrots. And if you've never had a carrot that's like just out of the ground, that you wipe a little dirt off of it, maybe a little bit of cold water, and then you you eat it, and you still got some dirt on it, you've never really eaten a carrot. I mean, honestly, I believe a carrot stops tasting like 100% carrot about a minute after it comes out of the ground. <laughs> There's that moment when it comes out of the ground is just really remarkable. Um, but so I had that, you know, growing up. And then when I went away to Spain and I lived in Spain, there was, um, it's changed a lot in Spain now, but a long time, well, not so long ago, in the 90s, you know, 20, 25 years ago, um, there were not grocery stores. There were very few grocery stores in Spain. And people shopped at the markets. Um, they bought fish from the wife of the of the fisherman. They bought potatoes from the wife of the the potato farmer. There was you know every every kind of specialty grower producer had a little stand in the market and they brought their product to market and 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 as a result, you ate seasonally and locally because that's what you did. There were no other options. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, as I was kind of learning to, to cook in Spain, that, that really uh, was a big part of, of how I cooked and how I thought about food. And then getting sick, the irony is, is that I was sick for so long and I didn't know, and I talked about this in my talk at Revitalize, like I didn't, I was so blind, I couldn't see that the answer was right in front of me, that, that it was food all along, that mm-hmm. that was the answer to, to my... The, to, to the answer was given to you as a small child. Exactly. You had it your whole life. I had it my whole yeah. life, and, and I guess the moral of the story is always listen to your mom and listen to your grandmother, because <laughs> they're so smart, and they know, I hope my mother hears this, because that will give me good brownie points. But uh, no, she, completely, I mean, my, my mother and grandmother intuitively, and maybe it's a maternal thing. Maybe mothers kind of know this. They know how instinctively they know what to do to care for their, their children. But my, my mom and my grandmother just kind of, they, they kept saying, look at food, look at food. That's, you're going to find your answers in food. And like most kids, like, you know, your mom tells you what to do, you don't do it. But then someone else tells you what to do. And it's the same thing your mom told you and you do it. Right. And then your mom's like, see, I told you so. She's just listening. (laughs) But, but, uh, no, so I did, you know, I eventually came around and, and obviously that was a huge component and a huge aspect of my, of my journey and, and, and healing. And as a result, it has had a huge impact on how I cook in the restaurants, um, and how I think about food in the restaurants. In what specific sense? Oh, I mean, you know, in the reduction of the amount of gluten that we have on the menu, um, in getting rid of any refined white flour, we only use heritage grains when we use grains. Mm. I mean, there's things in the menu that I don't eat. Don't get me wrong. Um, like I don't, I don't eat sugar. We have to use some sugar, mm-hmm. um, but we use almost no refined sugar now. We do uh, pretty much all of our our desserts are, are, you know, when you have the desserts, they're not that sweet. We've taken a lot of the sweetness out, and we use just natural sweetness from the fruits that we're using. If we do use uh, sweeteners, it's things like raw honey or using some maple syrup. But we've really reduced that a lot. Um, we've reduced the amount of, of bread. Like, there's much less bread within the restaurant. Um, 
ratcheting back the way we we look at the proteins as i talked to you as i mentioned before like using using meat as an ingredient rather than as a as a main component i mean we do have some dishes that are meat dishes that are meant for sharing but they're not meant for a single person to sit down and eat 42 ounces of beef i mean mm. that's not that's not the way it's it it's designed um so there's definitely been an impact and then certainly how i cook outside of the restaurant and the the the, the challenge that i do have is that my restaurants right now are spanish restaurants so they're very much within a concept of, of Spanish food. Within that, I have a little bit of leeway in terms of what I can do, but there's an expectation that there's going to be, you know, some of the greatest hits of Spanish cuisine are going to be on the mm-hmm. menu. So I, I do have to also be conscientious of that. Right. But it's kind of a sharing culture, right? Yeah. In this sort of tapas tradition. Yeah. So it's the idea of ordering a bunch of plates and kind and of snacking. And yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the career a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, here you are, celebrity chef. You know, you, you I hate you, that term. I know, but yeah. it's like that's why I'm laughing because yeah. I'm sure you got yeah. like. But it, you know, it's a weird time where yes, suddenly the ascendancy of the chef as a as a as a you know kind of celebrated personality. It's mm-hmm. never been like kind of a better time for that, and maybe you kind of lament that on some in some respects. But I think it's probably also been you know it's a good time for you. There's yeah. a lot of interest in what you do and. Look, you've been on TV and you you get to, you know, contribute to, to Men's Journal and Esquire and all these magazines mm-hmm. and you're doing stuff on Vice and and you've had an, a pretty storied career. I mean, you've got three restaurants now, Tertulia. Four with one four. in London, yeah. Oh, so, well, Sea Container is London. Yeah. And what was the, so I thought there were three. There's So there's El, Colmado, El Colmado. El Colmado Tertulia. Butchery, which is sort mm-hmm. of a natural butcher shop and tapas bar. And Tertulia. Right. And Sea Container. And Sea Container is the fourth. Sea Container is the fourth one. That's so I'm in still missing one. Tertulia, El Colmado, and El Colmado Butchery. Those oh, okay. Se- I, thought those th- I thought those were the same thing. No, I they're se- they're separate. Right. They're two different units. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's about. It's funny you 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 were mentioning earlier. It said when well, you're running around, you're doing these things like going on these trips and doing all this stuff, and that plays into that part of. Um, it's very, you're, you have, you're like this Hemingway ask, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, getting to do all these crazy adventures and then write about it. Yeah. And then, you know, it's all very, you know, related and kind of interwoven with the food and the story that you tell around food. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing about food is food can be this really amazing narrative. You know, food is, food is like the oldest ingredient in culture. It's the one thing that brings us all together. It's the, it's, I, I like call it the language of culture. You know, it's, you look at, can you imagine Italian food without tomatoes? Mm-hmm. That's a new ingredient. It's only been in Italy for 350, 400 years, you know? So it's a very, very new thing in so many ways. There are potatoes, Spanish food without potatoes. Nobody wanted to eat potatoes until the, till the 17th century. They thought they were poisonous. Um, so, so food evolves, and the culture of food evolves, and and nowhere does it evolve faster than New York, which is this confluence of all these different cultures. And we're constantly the reinventing ourselves and what cuisine in New York is, because you have all of these new food cultures all the time um, that we're aware of and that are flowing by us. So having this as this great narrative thread to be able to explore, whether it's 
you know, I'm going, I'm going to Spain in, in two weeks on my bicycle, but we're going to be going to wineries and to small little restaurants and markets, and I'm going to be cooking some dinners. And it's food is an, is an element of it, but it combines food and cycling. So two of my favorite things, you know, mm-hmm. in a great place. Uh, that's that's a great another great way that food can be a and it is now you look at travel people base so much of their travel on food mm-hmm. like they don't go to mm-hmm. places that have bad food they make whole decisions about their vacations based upon a single restaurant that they want to go to or a food destination that they've heard about or they've read about and there is a bit of a of a of a national obsession even an international obsession with food these days um and some of it is is fetishistic. Some of it is is you know folks going to the market and and taking pictures and updating their Instagram so everyone can see how you know food conscious they are. <laughs> but I think a lot of the, the 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 noise that that creates is is good because it it forces us to to constantly go back to thinking about food and about real food and being aware of it because we went we've got we went through this real this this vacuum dark age from like the 1940s to very recently where you know we were really geared towards efficiency in food mm-hmm. getting your calories and the right calories and just enough of them not too many because that's what's important as quickly as possible so you can get on to being a productive human being um, and you know it sounds it sounds almost misogynistic, but I really, and I don't mean it to sound this way, but, but our health really fe- fe- you know, kind of went off the rails when, when women started working and developing careers. And not that I, don't, that I think it's a, a bad thing. I think it's a wonderful thing that, that, that we've been able to come much closer to equal rights for women, although you know, there's still a lot of disparity in terms of income. Um, but what it meant is that we stopped having somebody within the family who's primary responsibility and goal was making sure that there was good food for the family and they were considering food. So we, we had to, there was a hole that had to be filled and that's where, you know, TV dinners started happening and, Mm -hmm. and canned food and and frozen meals and packaged and prepared foods. Um, so if we can get back to more of a dialogue about real food, uh, and if that has to come from a point of, of food fetishism, then it's not such a bad thing. But uh, it is like this really interesting narrative thread that goes through so much of our lives. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting culturally how that's kind of evolved. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, with this new kind of welcoming of mindfulness practices, how that influences how we approach the mm-hmm. mealtime and how we approach like communion, you know, like yeah. the, actually just sharing this, you know, sacred thing with our friends and our, and our loved ones, which is something that we just you know, move too far away from, Mm -hmm. but I I do see it moving back. You know, it's almost like this recapturing of that lost tradition. That's so integral uh, and and important when it comes to what it means to be human yeah, be fulfilled and be happy. That connection there, there's, I mean, since time eternal, we've gathered around food and that's how language evolved. And that's how culture became more complex and diversified. I mean, we literally at its most basal level, we went out and we looked for some, we looked for some roots and shoots and we picked them and we huddled down and we, and squatted around a campfire and we maybe cooked them a little bit together, Mm -hmm. but we did it. Generally speaking, we did it together. we're, We're social animals. So the notion that you eat food out of a bag interfacing with a device is very much in, um, in opposition to our nature. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we you know it has detrimental effects, both emotional, psychological, and physical effects on the human being. As a culinary entrepreneur, the fair to call you that. I guess sure. it's a fair. You know, yeah. I, what do, how would you characterize 
you know, what you do or, or how what you do distinguishes yourself from the other chefs out there? I mean, how, what do you attribute your kind of success and, and ascendancy to? Like, what is it that you're doing different? Or, or what is it that, you know, you think, when you, when you think back on your path, has allowed you to become so successful? Um, I mean, I think that one of the things that, you know, there's, there's first of all, there, there are a lot of amazing chefs in, in, in our space. And there's been a real, I'm, I'm one of many guys that has, has gotten to a point where I'm really concerned with food and wellness. And I see it from, you know, to differing degrees. I see, I have a friend, Bill Telepan, who's a great chef in New York. And he's focused, he, he, he started a foundation called Wellness in the Schools. And he's taken his platform as a chef and, as, and his knowledge as a chef to, to really try to, to innovate and make change in, in, the, in the school lunch programs within in New York City and now expanding beyond New York City. And he's done an incredible job. So there, I think we all have this sense of responsibility with the attention, the focus that's put on us through the media, um, you know, we have a sense of responsibility and ownership over what we do. Um, you know, in my case, I think that initially I was very fortunate to start cooking in a space that very few people were cooking in, which was in Spanish food. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't really a lot of spokespeople for Spanish food. And then over time, as, as I, my health has really become a focus in my life and something that's that to me I feel, you know, I'm... One very grateful to have to have reclaimed um, and to be aware of the relationship I have with with food and and how it impacts my well being. I feel that I have a lot to share with that, and I'd like to share as much as I can. So I, you know, I don't know that. I wouldn't say that it distinguishes me from my my colleagues. I mean, I think there are a lot of great. There, I have a lot of amazing colleagues. I don't think of myself as being more or less successful than 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 most of them. Right. I mean, um, but you're comparing yourself, you know, to sort of the great talents of of Manhattan or or perhaps the world. But in the sort of grand scheme of mm -hmm. you know people that are interested in doing what you do, you know, it's like look, you've got four restaurants, you're growing. I'm sure you've got plans to. You've got other things that you're yeah. working on right now. Um, you know, how does that, how does that happen? Like, how do you, you, you know what I mean? Like, what's the difference between you and the guy who might be a great talent in the kitchen, mm -hmm. but just can't, can't move it to the next level? Well, I think a big part of it is letting go and, and developing a team and understanding that when, when you, when you foster a team and you have people that are really successful, give them autonomy, let them, let mm -hmm. them spread their wings. And in spreading their wings, you know, that's part of why I can do a lot of the things that I do outside of the restaurant because I have a, I have a great support system within the restaurant that I've spent 10 years developing. Mm -hmm. And that's, I would think, counterintuitive because I would imagine that, you know, a sort of great talent in the kitchen is going to go hand in hand with being a control freak. Totally, it does. The but problem, that's how you run yourself into the ground, how, right? Yeah, and the problem is, is that when any... any um, someone was talking to me recently about a... Uh, a the way a lot of um of of um hedge fund guys the way they work and they, they'll go into a business and they'll say okay tell me who's the one person here who's indispensable and they'll find the one person that's indispensable and then they'll fire that person mm. and they're no longer indispensable because they're gone <laughs> no no business should really depend upon and it happens in the restaurant too if the restaurant is completely dependent upon the chef and the chef has to do absolutely everything and it all comes down to that one individual then you're you're never going to be able to grow. You're going to be completely hamstrung by that one individual. You need to foster a team and a community of people that that all has autonomy and ha takes ownership over what what we do as a group. Um, 
And I think, you know, a lot of that comes from creating a culture and the language that you use. Like I, I, within the restaurant or even outside the restaurant, I never talk about people in terms of so-and-so works for me and he works for me and she works for me. I, I always say, well, we work on this. And I use the term we. And I think it's really important to remember that. And I, I have to sometimes remind myself to do it. But it's a conscious thing because it, it ultimately people, when they, have, when they feel a sense of autonomy and pride, a sense of pride and ownership in what they do, uh, they, they have much more um, allegiance to, their, to, the, to the organization that they mm-hmm. work for. Mm-hmm. They care much more about what they do. And they have a, a, a greater sense of pride. Um, but to work for a tyrant who just says, no, you work for me and you do it my way and this is the way it is, that, that gets old pretty quickly. If you I'm manage, sure, you, I'm sure you've worked for Yeah, I've worked like for that. sure. I worked yeah, for yeah. a chef that used to burn me all the time intentionally or hit me and do all sorts of crap like that. Mm-hmm. And that, you, you know, that works for a period of time. You can manage through fear for a period of time. But um, eventually, when that, that'll, that'll backfire. You know, the whole Gordon Ramsay syndrome of yelling and screaming at everyone, belittling people, that doesn't work very long. You know, eventually people get sick of it and they go and find someplace else to work. Right, right, right. Unless their self-esteem is so low, but then those aren't necessarily yeah, exactly. the people you, you want. Yeah, yeah, that's not who you want. Yeah. But, you they know, think we, so poorly of themselves exactly. that they stick around. I, I have, a, um, I have a, a guy that works with us, um, Shiaka. I really, really like him a lot. Um, and he's, he's, uh, he's from Gambia. And, um, you know, he's, he, he has a degree in accounting. He got a scholarship to come to the U.S., to study accounting and then the university he went to went belly up and he lost his scholarship and he ended up in the US and here's a guy who'd never worked in a restaurant before but he needed a job and he showed up as a dishwasher um, that was like almost two years ago and now he's he's a, one of the best cooks we have mm. and he's totally like he's on the path to being a chef mm. because he we, we saw that he had potential he cared he was very very loyal and hard working and really wanted to be there and so we started giving him more responsibilities and every little responsibility we gave him, he kind of grabbed it and took a hold of it and took ownership of it and took pride in it. And so we rewarded him by giving him more responsibility and he just started growing through the ranks and he's coming up through the ranks in the, in the kitchen and he's learning new skills and earning more money and becoming a more indispensable part of the team. You know, and that's, that's something to me that's really, it's really important to look at, um, the individual and, and, uh, one of my partners in the restaurant, Gil, um, who runs all of the service in the front of house. He taught me something. We've worked together for about 10 years and he taught me something a long time ago that I, I always think about, and it's a, it's a great lesson. Don't try to fit the, the, um, the job to the person, mm-hmm. fit the person to the job or sorry, mm-hmm. vice versa. Don't try to fit the person to the job. Fit. So, so find, find the job that that person will succeed at right. rather than trying to change the person. It's easier to change the job than to change the person. So find out what they're really good at and make the job fit them. Mm-hmm. And but then uh, there's certain jobs that just that's the job. Yeah, but there are right. some people that are good at just that's the job. Like yeah. for some people, it's that's that works for them. They don't want the burden of responsibility or they don't want the burden of creativity. Um, and I totally get that too. All right. Cool. All right, well, we got to close it down here soon, but uh, it would be great. I would love to leave people with a couple sort of, you know, tips that they could take with them. Like if you had to articulate... A couple of some, nuggets. Yeah, just like pressure, right? Yeah. You know, just, just a couple things like if you want to be more mindful about your health, what are a couple simple things mm-hmm. that people could incorporate into their life sure. that have been helpful to you? All right. Well, one is very, very basic, 
but I think it's um, I think it's very valuable that before you put anything in your mouth, ask yourself, is this helping me or is this harming me? And it's okay if sometimes the answer is it's harming me. I mean, there's I think you'd be hard pressed to make an argument for eating ice cream and claiming that it's a health food or sorbet and claiming that it's good for you. But sometimes that's okay. Like sometimes the joy that you get from that, as long as it's, you're keeping it in check with everything else that you're doing, is, is just as important. And I think joy is really important. And on that note, if, if you don't feel joyful about the food that you're eating, then you're doing something wrong. You really need to, you need to find the joy and the pleasure in the relationship you have with food. Um, because if it's an antagonistic relationship, it's, uh, it's a doomed relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing it goes that, to the preparation of the food as well. Yeah, totally. The joy of preparing food, the ceremony of it. I mean, I think there's a lot of spirituality in food. Um, and there's a lot of spirituality in cooking. If you think about it in terms of providing sustenance to, to your friends and your family and your loved ones and to yourself, like mm-hmm. there's, there's a very serious spiritual element to that. Um, so, so do it with, with consideration and with consideration from where those ingredients came from and with reverence and respect for those, for those ingredients and then ultimately for the people that are going to be eating them. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's too, too broad and heady, but I think that no, that's, I think that's good. important. You know, I think that's good, and I think that that's, th- those are things that are easy to sort of cast aside in our busy, you know, yeah. the gestalt of our busy modern lives. And, you know, I think that goes back to mindfulness as well. It's totally. Like being present and, and being aware of what it is that you're doing when you're, when, you know, when you're doing it, yep. you know, which is so basic and yet is, you know, eludes me most of the time. Well, it's, you know, it's hard because we live in this world of devices, which are like the, the, they're the, the biggest obstacle to mindfulness when you're trying to sit here. I mean, even now we're having this great conversation mm-hmm. and I feel my phone is vibrating, but I'm like, you know what? I don't care what it is. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter if it vibrates all along, but they, they, they take us out of the moment and make it very hard to be mindful. So I think it's certainly with meals. I think that's a good time to put, put the device away. Um, and just be, as you said, be in that moment and be whatever it is that you're doing, it be doing it 100%. Well, the, the Spanish culture seems to understand that, at least with respect to yeah. mealtime. Oh, you know? totally. They got it. <laughs> so, they got it. They, yeah, you know, they yeah. learn something. And then they sit around the table and they talk and they talk forever. And hours so that's, and hours. Yeah. I mean, that's what... It's a you beautiful know, tradition. It really is. And they do it in Italy as well. Um, you know, it's a very Mediterranean, uh, in Greece, obviously, it's, it's a very Mediterranean um, uh, tradition. But it's one that I think we, could, you know, everybody could benefit from. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Final question. Mm-hmm. How hard is La Ruta? <laughs> well, uh, Super let's just say hard. Let's just say that after the first day, I really had serious doubts. Even when I was lining up the starting light, the line the next morning, that I was going to be able to. To, to go on uh-huh. and then I so just it, found it's it six days so it's only three days three days yeah only three right. and only 29,000 feet of climbing mm-hmm. it uh it's really it's one of those you you I mean and you've you've done crazy crazy feats on uh in in Ironmans and Ultraman and all that not on a mountain bike though. doesn't matter though I mean it's the same thing you go into that place where you you you're, you know, people call it the pain cave or you go deep in your head and you just, it's a psychological moment of, of, um, moving the needle and knowing that you can do way more than you think you can do, mm-hmm. but you just have to trust that you can. 
what's the next big challenge? You know, this year I, I wanted to do um, the Breck Epic, which is a similar um, similar race in, in, in Colorado. But unfortunately, the timing didn't work out for me. So I, I think that this year is going to be not, not so many not so much competition. I'm going to be doing a lot. I've already done a bunch of charity rides, um, a lot of long, long rides. I'm going to do this really cool race in, uh, Massachusetts called the D2 R2, which is, um, all, it's like a road bike race, but all on gravel. Oh, wow. Uh, it's very cool. And then I think next year I'm going to try to do this, uh, do an adventure race across Mongolia on mountain bikes. Uh-huh, cool. So that's, that's I think, the one that we're going to really kind of gear for. Nice, man. Is that yeah. going to be another men's journal? That'll be so something. Men. We'll see what it is. Yeah, it might be It might be in a magazine. Uh, who knows? I figure that out. I need yeah. somebody to, like, fun, crazy adventures. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe, maybe you can come and do this one with me. Right? I, yeah, that's basically, that's the yeah. whole idea behind this, get yeah. you to invite me to yeah, come Yeah, to totally. Those, we got to cool. get you on a mountain bike. Well, at the very least... Uh, if you pass through LA, man, we got to find a way to get out yeah. on, on bikes. Well, in, in, in July, I'll be out there. I'm going to bring my bike. Oh, cool. So I'll be out there for two weeks in well, July. Hopefully you'll be let's there. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Man. That would be awesome. Right on. Cool. cool. So, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thank man. you. Thanks for having appreciate me. It. It's a real you're pleasure. An inspiration. That was an absolute treat. I appreciate it. So, uh, if you're in New York city, visit Tertulia. Yep. El Colmado. El Colmado. Colmado. Yep. Colmado. You roll the tongue. El just, Colmado. Yeah. It's just perfect. Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, right. And there. if you're in London, see container at yeah. the, is it the W? The Mondrian Hotel. The Mondrian. Okay. Yeah. Are you opening up something new? Soon? I have a Talk new place opening in Brooklyn in, uh, but at the beginning of next year, wow. 2016. Does it have a name yet? Or? It does not have a name, unfortunately. Right. No, that's something I got to get on. <laughs> Spanish infused though. No, well, this, is, this is, your, this is, this is going to be right up your alley. It's going to be a, I don't want to say fine dining, but it's going to be sort of an elegant restaurant, but all, um, focused around local ingredients and a lot of vegetable cooking. Very cool. I like that. Man. Yeah. All right. So if you're digging on Seamus, uh, at Seamus Mullen on Twitter and SeamusMullen.com, those Perfect. are the best places to Perfect. figure out, right? Yep. And I'm going to go to Tertulia tonight. Yeah? Awesome. Yeah. We'll see you in a bit. Some good plant food for me tonight. You got it. Cool, man. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Cool. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Peace. Plants. All right, we did it. That's the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Let me know what you thought of the episode in the comments section on the episode page at richroll.com. Keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. I'm loving all the questions that you guys are doing. And of course, we're, as you know, we're doing more and more AMA episodes of the podcast. For all your plant power needs, visit richroll.com. We got nutrition products. We got fine art. We got signed copies of our books. We got 100% organic cotton garments. We got Julie's meditation program. We got plant power tech teas, basically everything you need to take your health and your wellness to the next level. We got your bases covered at richroll.com. I got two online courses at mindbodygreen.com, the art of living with purpose and the ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition, both really great multiple hour courses that are very affordable. Just go to mindbodygreen.com, click on video courses. You can find it there. Uh, What else? Thanks for supporting the show, you guys. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for sharing it on social media. Thank you for giving us a review on iTunes. And thank you for using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. I'll see you guys in a few days. I'm excited for some amazing upcoming episodes I'm going to be sharing with you guys. I'm really kicking it into high gear. And I hope you guys have an awesome week. Peace. Plants. (laughs) 